Uh, my name is Sherry Falkenheimer. Uh, my email's there if you want to contact me. Uh, I would appreciate it if you don't put my name associated with uh, being a mission leader or my title on the Internet anywhere because of where we work. But I'd be glad to interact with any of you. I oversee uh, one of the mission arms of CMDA, Christian Medical and Dental Association, called Medical Education International. And I'll tell you a little more about that. Uh, when this position came open, I had already retired from the Air Force and didn't have a, a regular job. So I thought, well, I have a lot of international experience. I should probably apply. But I thought, uh, you know, how mission-oriented is my specialty? Probably the least, aerospace medicine. Most of you probably never even heard of that. But God has a sense of humor. And to make a long story short, I got the job. I think I may have been the only applicant, so it's kind of a shoe-in. But <laughs> just shows you there's nothing you're doing that God can't use. So we want to talk today a little bit about uh, how to do short-term teams that are sustainable and build capacity. I think uh, the talk last night was a really good setup for that. And these are the official learning objectives that we have to put for continuing education. But I do want to talk about how to have long-term benefits from teams and also compare the costs of different types of teams. I'd like you all to just kind of shout out ideas of what comes to your mind when you think of short-term medical mission teams. What do they look like? Compassion. Compassion. Yes, that's very important. What kind of people will go? What kind of uh, groups? What do they look like? Hodgepodge. Okay, we have multiple specialties usually. Anything else? Flexible, very important. Eager. Okay, eager. What about size, composition, things like that? Fifteen. Okay, fairly good size. Fifteen, some are much higher. Students. A lot of students. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to, to uh, model missions for them and give them an idea of what it might be like in other cultures. Pills. Pills? Pills. Pills, yes, lots of pills. And uh, uh, some kind of pharmacy operation. Anything else? How many of you have been on one? Okay, so you should have lots of input for me. <laughs> what was your team like? Okay, clinics. That's a very probably the most common model. Anything else, George? Education. Okay, education. Hopefully. <laughs> Anything else? Mobility. Mobility. Yeah, you have to have things you can move around. What type of team do you think? Think about the kinds of teams you could do. What what kind of team will leave uh, uh, an increased capacity behind and sustainability after you leave? What kinds of things would you do? Okay, education. I have a couple plants in the audience. (laughs) Training. Is that typically what we do? So these are the typical kinds of teams. The first is the most common, clinics, uh, providing direct care uh, with evangelism. Uh, We also have some surgical teams, which all of these are of direct benefit to the patients. Uh, If there's some type of surgical thing that can be quickly corrected, uh, doing something in community development, public health. 
And then teaching. Teaching is uh, one of the least common kinds of teams in my experience. And uh, fortunately, I think it's getting more recognized, the importance of doing this for sustainability. But I think you'll realize quickly that my bias is we should be doing some type of education on teams. And I want to give you some reasons why. This is kind of a comparison of uh, the, what the uh, clinically oriented teams typically look like bases versus the teaching oriented. One good thing about clinical teams is you can bring students, you can bring your family usually. On teaching teams, especially if you're teaching faculty, uh, residents, often there's nothing much for the family to do in the daytime and uh, it's not so conducive. So that discourages people sometimes from coming. Uh, clinical teams are equipment intensive. You have to have medications. If you're doing surgery, you need a lot of equipment. Uh, where teaching teams, the goal should be and typically is to maximize their ability to do uh, great care or, or as best care they can with what they have rather than to bring equipment, uh, which often if, you know, if we bring equipment like the World Health Organization often gives equipment to hospitals and things overseas, if you've seen any of those pieces of equipment, a number of countries people have taken me to them and said, can you fix this ventilator? Can you fix this uh, anesthesia machine? Because they don't have people who can do preventive maintenance. They don't have spare parts. And as soon as it breaks, it's no good. So uh, we don't, most teaching teams don't focus on bringing new equipment. Uh, the clinically oriented teams do a lot of uh, direct care that the local people appreciate and uh, especially the poor who can't access care where the focus of a medical teaching team is very different. It's not on seeing the patients directly. It's on increasing the knowledge and capacity of the people doing the care. So after you leave, they're able to do more. And often TOT is training trainers. So if we teach, uh, say, an advanced life support course, we don't just want to teach that and leave. We want to train people to teach it so they can continue. Um, clinically oriented teams, I've heard of uh, a number of situations where uh, the local doctors just close their practice when the team comes in because nobody comes to them. They want to see the Norte Americanos or, or whatever. So it's competing with them. It leaves a bad taste in their mouth. It uh, decreases their income for the time that the team is there oftentimes, unless you're in a, an area where there is no medical care, where the goal of teaching is to partner with local, uh, local medical workers who may or may not be teachers themselves. And um, clinically oriented teams provide direct short-term results, but once you leave, there's nobody there to continue the care. The downside, though, of the teaching-oriented teams is they're less personally satisfying. When you go on a clinical team, you see 100 patients a day, you uh, share the gospel with a lot of people, it's very personally satisfying. But teaching uh, takes a different view. And I've had doctors say to me when I told them what we do, oh, I'll go on a, a team where I can do, you know, 10 surgeries a day if we're only going to teach four hours a day. You know, that's a waste of my time. So it's a different viewpoint. And if you're familiar with this book, When Healthcare Hurts, uh, these are categories of best practices for global health initiatives. And I think if you look at them, uh, a teaching model is much more in line with trying to accomplish those safety, 
that when you leave, there's somebody to care for the patient. And there have been some real horror stories, as some of you know, about what happened to people after the team left, if they have complications or something, uh, if their pills are, you know, used with the wrong people or in the wrong doses. Uh, the people that you're teaching are already in the health system, so it immediately integrates whatever within what they can realistically do, within what's acceptable in their culture and political situation. Uh, it facilitates the development of their health system and empowers the, the uh, local people. Uh, another major consideration, I think, is stewardship, the amount of money that's spent on teams uh, as well as the number of people sent and the time uh, involved away from their practices, which costs them money, too. And um, these are uh, two different examples, one clinical and teaching, uh, where uh, one group goes mainly to the Western Hemisphere, takes large teams of at least 30, sometimes 40 or more participants, where uh, the teaching team mainly go to uh, Muslim and Buddhist countries, which are, of course, in the 1040 window and very unreached areas. And there are also areas that North American universities that are partnering overseas often don't go because they go to the often the richer areas where the partnership is uh, more popular, I guess you say, than, than uh, like Tajikistan or somewhere like that. And they do see a lot of patients, and we talked about their benefit. But one team may cost, this is kind of a conservative estimate for 30 people, uh, about $90,000, where uh, the teaching group sent five teams of only five people for five years, taught advanced life support, trained people to teach it, and then they took that all over the country and trained fi over 1,500, last time I heard, health professionals in their country to do advanced life support. And there were reports after uh, uh, a major violence situation in their country that a number of lives were saved because they had a common approach to care. And even some of the relatives of the people trained were, were saved. Uh, you can't do as much direct evangelism on these teams, typically, especially if you're in uh, largely unreached and sensitive countries. But uh, in some places, we can have daily devotions. This was in East Africa, so we could. And uh, the main thing is, is relationships, like we heard last night, building relationships with colleagues. I see medical and dental people as an unreached people group. You know, think about your university or your hospital. How many people around you know the Lord? And it's not so easy for a, a missionary or a hospital chaplain to necessarily uh, relate to them or them to relate and uh, come to hear the gospel. But you're rubbing shoulders with them every day. And it's the same thing when you're overseas with your colleagues. There's a natural bond that you have the same interests, the same specialty. And uh, the, the uh, sharing has to be much more one-on-one, -on -one, they'll often ask you questions. And all five of these teams only cost about $75,000. So I think stewardship-wise, you can see the benefit of incorporating teaching. Uh, also, with the clinical teams, we already talked about uh, the local care is not particularly facilitated. There are a lot of faith decisions. Um, it's always hard to know how many of those are first-time decisions. Uh, there are certainly cultures where you don't not raise your hand if your your guest asks you to uh, commit to something. 
But I think there are uh, a number of dramatic uh, changes in people's lives, which is certainly not to be neglected. But I think we can do those teams better. And uh, I already talked about the, uh, the long-term benefits of the teaching team. And the other thing is we went under the auspices. This was not a Muslim country. We went under the auspices of a local CMDA. And uh, that allowed them to charge for the conference. They did all the work on the ground, setting it up. It was that kind of a partnership. We didn't do that part. They charged for the course, what they thought was appropriate. Uh, the, any money left over after the conference was used by them for their ministry. They do clinics out in the poorer areas and evangelism and things. And uh, it also facilitated their, uh, their uh, what would you call it, reputation, I guess you'd say, in the, in the eyes of their colleagues because the Muslim hospitals sent people there. They even paid for their people to go because they wanted them to get the training, and nobody else brought it to them. So uh, you have to be willing to take a low profile, but I think uh, it can really enhance the work of our, our national partners as well. And I always like to kind of dream, you know, we were talking about shalom yesterday and what does God want medical care in the world to look like? And I think uh, having this view can help us when we go to do the things that are most appropriate. You know, we'd, of course, like to see people recognizing God has given them this vocation and called them. And we want to ensure they're as competent as possible, just like we want to be as competent as possible. And many of them want to be very competent, but they don't have access to some of the advanced training that is available in other places, and they can't afford to pay people to come and do it. There are some exceptions. There have actually been some countries who have paid us to come and teach. And interestingly, uh, the first two were both Muslim countries. So God has a sense of humor, I think, having Muslims pay Christian teams to come and teach in their countries. Uh, also, a lot of times without opening your mouth, they start asking you questions because you all know uh, healthcare. I thought it would be a very collegial, mentoring kind of atmosphere, but you all know how it is oftentimes uh, competition. People aren't kind to each other. If you need somebody to take your shift, it's very hard, and it's even worse a lot of times in other countries. So them seeing that you care for them as well as when you see patients with them, how you treat the patients often opens a lot of doors uh, and providing compassionate care. And then hopefully as they come to know the Lord, they'll develop a similar attitude of uh, serving their patients rather than, uh, you know, making money off them. Many countries, they take bribes partly because they're not well paid. But um, all those things God wants to change. And we can't do it all, but God can do it through us and enhance uh, shalom and healing. And this is not just something Americans do. Uh, we've had partners from other nations like Korea, Canada. I have a German uh, who's hopefully going on a team this spring. So uh, I'd like to encourage more countries to do it. And our Kenyan partners are looking at going to other areas uh, in East Africa, for example, now to teach in those areas, some of which are very hard for white-faced people to go into. Uh, certainly, we want it to uh, look like uh, uh, an academic situation that provides good teaching, but also modeling Christ. I like uh, Bruce Dahlman. Instead of calling Christ the great physician, he calls him the great healer, because healing is a lot more than the physical healing, as you know. There's a whole person medicine, WPM. You know, people are body, mind, and spirit, uh, and they need 
all those areas addressed, and uh, we are able to address all of them to some extent and then uh, have, have uh, others help with some of those aspects. Uh, we can mentor people and model, it, model how that's done because it's not common even in, in the U.S. I can't remember having many mentors through my training. And uh, begin partnering transculturally, and then they start doing the same thing. And uh, hopefully each person doing this is transformed by, by serving. Uh, not so much having the focus on them, how many people we saw today, but on uh, seeing our colleagues grow and uh, move into better care and hopefully knowing the Lord. So I'd like to give you some examples of long-term results. I, I'm most familiar with our team, so those are the main examples I'll give. But there, we have other partners that are doing similar things. This is our mission statement, which you can see is very like what I just described. We want to see God transform the lives of our colleagues through the education and, and uh, bring them to know the Lord. And we only respond to invitations. We don't just go to a country and say, we want to train you in advanced life support. So kind of like we heard last night, this is a felt need in the country. And uh, we're asked by a wide variety of groups. It's a God thing. We have no you know, strategic plan to contact every country. Uh, sometimes people from governments are at medical meetings and some of our colleagues meet them and they hear of a need and they say, oh, we know some people who could bring you some teaching teams if you're interested or they want to have one Central Asian country wanted to do a conference on uh, effects of radiation in uh, people in the environment. It was an area near where 200 Soviet nuclear tests had been done, and they couldn't find people to come. And, you know, CMDA has 8,000 graduate physicians and dentists, so we brought a radiation oncologist. We, we were able to uh, fit almost any strange need that they may not be able to find. Uh, often uh, medical schools and residencies may uh, hear about us and invite us. Some find us on the website. And then uh, another important role, I think, is uh, tent makers, especially missionaries working in sensitive areas. For instance, there's a, a group we're working with now in, in the Caucasus area of the former Soviet Union in a Muslim area that uh, is trying, is a medical person trying to get into the medical system more by bringing teams. So we just did a, a pediatric neurodisability team this fall. We did one last year. We have a psychiatry team going next month, a pediatric team in the spring, and then a, an internal medicine team next fall if the Lord calls people. So uh, it can really, several, having several teams in several different areas can really help them establish relationships for their ministry. And uh, as I mentioned, we mainly go to uh, Muslim and Buddhist countries for a number of reasons. Uh, also, some, some are not so poor, but um, many are. And uh, it's an opportunity to serve both the poor and the unreached and encourage the Christian medical and dental movements. Some uh, didn't even have a Christian medical dental movement when we first went. Other places, we go under their auspices, and it's their conference. Uh, of course, we want to bring long-term change, and it requires a long-term view. And I already mentioned some of the difficulties with that. We have to realize we're going not to feel good ourselves but to do something for the Lord and uh, let others have the glory uh, or the uh, uh, benefits of the training, if possible. 
but we want to build relationships. And this is a particularly good time for this because even though we're only there typically a week, sometimes two weeks, uh, people often continue the relationship through Skype, through email. And we encourage the same people to go back to the same country. So, you know, some people have been eight times to the same country, say, and uh, have deepened relationships. And each time you go, there's more opportunity. The first time, typically, people are suspicious. Did you just come to go on safari or take a tour or, you know, spy on our country or whatever? And uh, if you keep going, they realize there's something more to it. And some of our, our people, it's not required, but some have even uh, invited them to come to the States and, and kind of have an exchange, come and see how they do that practice, whatever the topic is in our country and that's also a great opportunity. They are in their homes and that sort of thing. But most places we go, you really have to earn the right to be heard. You know how it is in the medical world. You can't just go up and give your colleagues the gospel, typically. And I think it's important for us to also keep this idea of uh, evangelism involves both preparing the soil, planting, and watering. So uh, we can't necessarily go once and say, you know, ten physicians came to the Lord. In some of these countries, someone described it as it's not even preparing the soil yet. It's just moving the, the big rocks out of the way. You know, it's uh, estimated that, it, that Muslims take, I think it's like 100 positive contacts with a Christian before they'll even consider the gospel. So sometimes it's just letting them see what a Christian is because they think it's, you know, what they see on American television and the movies that come over there. And it's a very long-term process, and it's not our job to bring them to faith. That's the Holy Spirit's job, and we just need to be faithful. That's our commitment. Of course, we want them to come to faith, but I think if we focus only on numbers, uh, we'll get discouraged really early, and nothing will come of it. So what have we taught? We've taught just about any kind of thing you can think of, short courses like advanced life support. We've been parts of international conferences like this one I mentioned in Central Asia, uh, we've taught dentistry in dental schools. We've done faculty development. We've taught medical ethics, which is a great opportunity because you have to get to how do you decide what's ethical? What are your basic presuppositions? So that's really a – I love to do that. And I try to squeak it in anywhere. You know, we do go in response to invitations, but we also negotiate. So we can say, oh, what if we included a talk on this, like on medical uh, – Medical recognition of victims of human trafficking or Hippocratic medicine. You say there's a problem with corruption in your medical system. Let's talk about what was important about Hippocratic medicine that all three monotheistic faiths accepted. And that uh, kind of gives you the platform to talk about the kind of care we want to see and I think God wants to see. Then we do some really specific things. We've taught electroconvulsive therapy. We've taught functional endoscopic sinus surgery, which I had never heard of, had to look up. And believe it or not, we've even taught aerospace medicine. I was in, uh, in Serbia last fall uh, working with their Christian Medical Association and one of their uh, members, which is a very small group, I think there are only about eight members in the country so far, worked for their equivalent of the FAA and said, oh, I see you're in aerospace medicine. Could you talk to our, our doctors? And they called in the, the doctors from the military medical academy. And I have a military background, as I think I alluded to, so that gives me some credibility with them. And they're civil aviation doctors, so we had about eight 
people involved with selection of flyers and things, and I was able to give two talks on ethical issues in aerospace medicine. So there's no field you're in that God cannot use. Hear that strongly. <laughs> he called you into that field for a reason. So uh, a couple more examples. Uh, Mongolia has been our longest project. We've been going two weeks, two weeks in spring and fall for 15 years. We just had our 30th team. Many of the people have gone on multiple teams, and there we can be openly Christian. Even at the beginning, when there were only a handful of known believers in the country, uh, we went as Christian Medical Association. Some countries we, you know, don't use our name, and that's why I try not to get my name on the website uh, associated with being a mission leader so it won't jeopardize our teams. Uh, but we've been going there for a long time, and it was only a year or two ago they first started talking to us about going outside the capital, where the control system is and the national system. Uh, we earned their trust. They were building a new hospital in a large city that's developing a mining operation, and they wanted some teaching done out there. And this was the first year this spring that we were able to go there. So that gives you some idea. You know, you might not even be... Uh, serving if you start at the beginning by the time we get to that area. It's a very long-term process. But they uh, raided groups that work with them a couple of years ago, and they raided uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association as their number one partner in meeting their needs. So that was a real encouragement. We don't always get that kind of feedback. And increasingly, initially they needed everything, so they took any any specialty we wanted to bring. But they're starting to... Uh, they've advanced quite a bit, and they're starting to focus on areas like we did a diabetes conference this spring. We're doing an oncology conference in the fall. So we're uh, continuing. We can change the level as we go. Uh, they're also better funded now because of their mineral wealth that they're starting to develop it. And when we first went, there weren't any known Christian medical people. Uh, of course, this is not this is God's thing, not just us. We're just a small piece. But we work with the long-term Christian missionaries there both medical and non-medical. And uh, in the 15 years, God has brought over 50,000 Mongolians to the Lord. They developed their own Christian medical association, partly through a long-term missionary working in the country that we also try to go and meet with them when we're there. And uh, I don't think it's a, a really good translation to be called G-A-S in English, but that's the name of their, <laughs> their association. Uh, and now they're Mongolian uh, believers in made high positions in the medical and dental school. So God is really at work. And, uh, you know, we can't, he does it. We just do a little piece. And it's just great to see how he brings so many people together and does great things. Uh, Kenya, we kind of talked about advanced life support teams. I won't spend more time on that. One of the fastest growing requests we have is for what we call pediatric neurodevelopment teams. This also started with the Christian Medical Association of Kenya. Uh, as you probably know, in many countries there's almost no uh, ability to recognize, diagnose, and treat uh, disabilities in anybody, particularly in children. Uh, and it's an area close to God's heart. And God is calling Christians in a number of countries to start ministries to them. And we've been partnering to try to help both them uh, get off the ground by providing training, but also they try to pull in medical people uh, in the health system that can also help. And we first did it in Kenya, but now we've had multiple requests, especially from Central Asia. 
we've done, like I mentioned, a couple of teams in the Caucasus, and we're really in need of more therapists. You know, Christian Medical and Dental Association doesn't have a lot of members who are physical, occupational, speech, whatever, therapists. So if you are or you know any Christians who are in various therapy roles who would be willing to go on a team, we really need them. So please put them in touch with us. And also developmental pediatricians. Uh, I said, you know, we have 8,000 graduate members in CMDA. We only have four that have identified as developmental pediatricians. So it's pretty hard. Fortunately, this fall, most of the team members were willing to go to both countries uh, two weeks in a row. So it's kind of a two-week team in two different countries. But most of them can't do that every year. So we really need to increase our pool of people. And I think this is an area God really wants to work we don't have a lot of results on that yet. We want to try to get more feedback. But we were told by uh, someone from one of the major hospitals in Nairobi that after the first team, we went back a year later, the average age of diagnosis had uh, decreased significantly in people with the three conditions they were most interested in learning about. And, of course, this isn't optimal. This isn't where, I want to, where we want to be. Uh, but it's a tremendous improvement, and uh, I'm hoping that's help happening other places. We do have a leader who's going to try to get more feedback on that. But uh, either way, God wants us to take care of the poor and the needy, and I think it's a, an important role. And I think one of the most amazing things I've seen, you've probably heard of uh, a Kairos moment. That's like when the Bible says, in the fullness of time, this happened. And I see this as a Kairos moment. Uh, the leader of CMDA in Augusta, Georgia, uh, and his group prayed and fasted for two years uh, that God would give them a special opportunity to minister overseas, and they did some exploratory trips. And to make a long story short, they got in contact with uh, a parliament member in Macedonia, who's a believer, and uh, it was a time the Ministry of Health wanted to improve their health system and was willing to pay to do it. And uh, there are a number of Christian workers there and a, an NGO that had already made a lot of contacts in the health system, kind of like I talked about we're trying to help them do in the Caucasus. So knew the leaders of the medical hospitals. And like the old Russian system, they have separate hospitals for everything, you know, pediatric hospital and internal medicine hospitals, surgical. So you have to have a lot of connections to have a uh, a role there, but they they made a memorandum with CMDA here that uh, if we would send them 24 doctors this year in certain specialties, they would pay for the entire trip. They pay their travel, they pay their in-country expenses, and a small honorarium. Which uh, we have a policy that honoraria, you know, go to to MEI, and it actually pays for their malpractice insurance, their travel insurance, their registration. So. There's no charge to the doctors who are going. Uh, we had 12 go in the spring, like requested. Andy is actually there three months in the spring and three months in the fall. He left his practice to do this, so it shows you the commitment. And after the first 12 doctors and the, the impact they were having medically and relationally, they said, oh, why don't you send 24 in the fall? So I actually sent 36 this year. And then they said, Next year, I think you should send 100. So we need a lot of, of uh, physicians, pretty much every specialty now. So if you're a physician who uh, would like to be part of this, please contact me. It won't cost you anything. Uh, I'll need to get uh, a one-page application from you and your CV. 
and I'll send those to Andy, and he screens them. The Macedonian government gives you a license there. You'll be covered for malpractice and all expenses paid. We do want you to go for the right reason, not just because it's a free trip, but, but uh, as, a, uh, as a result of these things, go ahead, uh, Arnie. Okay, basically, they place you in whatever hospital uh, is appropriate, and you do uh, teaching, you, uh, typically both lecture and uh, rounds and that sort of thing. Uh, they are very relational, so you can spend a lot of time in the evening having coffee and talking about your life and your practice and, you know, why you practice the way you do, which you can bring in spiritual things. Um, there are a number of Bible studies that have started uh, because of these conversations. Uh, a physician in the Ministry of Health has come to faith. Uh, they uh, were able to have a mission trip to an area, if you know about uh, Macedonia, the border area is largely Muslim. Church planters have been trying to get in there, but it was very hard. And after the first mission trip, they, they took Macedonian doctors, Orthodox people, to serve in those areas and were widely welcomed and uh, also they were very open spiritually and they had a second team to that area and now they've gone to a third, a separate area. So God's really using it to open places for the gospel too. But basically you'll be doing in the daytime and they have a pretty short day compared to America. They typically stop about two in the afternoon. So, so you know, you're not working till midnight. So you have some uh, energy left too. Go have coffee and dinner together and talk and, you know, share with them. And uh, it's been on the news so much in Macedonia that I guess Andy Sanders, uh, when he walks down the street, the taxi drivers recognize him, you know. But please do pray for this because it's really a God thing, but I'm sure the evil one's not happy about it. And uh, and just praying that uh, he won't uh, do something to bring opposition that will change this whole thing. But think about one vision I have and I've been praying about is think about World War One. That started in the Balkans when one guy shot another guy and uh, it spread all to Europe and then around the world. I've been praying that God will use an unlikely place like Macedonia to bring a revival movement or even a Bible movement where they're not believers yet that will spread throughout Europe and around the world and God can certainly do it. So we need to dream God's dreams and and pray for them. But did that answer your question? Yeah, so it's basically Monday through Friday, like uh, 8 to 2 or something. But a lot of spiritual time. Yeah, typically. They're also teaching surgery. One thing that was interesting, we were talking about the talk last night. They felt they needed a pediatric emergency room. Believe it or not, they had a pediatric hospital and no pediatric emergency room. So uh, they took it upon themselves in partnership with our NGO partner in the country to have a big benefit and raise funds from some expats who are in the country and some of their uh, national uh, people, leaders, medical people. And they raised the money to set up the emergency room and they set it up, but they didn't have anybody to teach them how to run a pediatric emergency room. So we've been able to, you know, recruit with God's help, some pediatricians who do pediatric emergency medicine to do that. So that's just the kind of thing that I think we should be aiming at and God seems to be increasingly doing. So spread the word. If you can't go, tell other doctors you know that might be interested. Right now it's just physicians, but it is all specialties.
Maybe, I don't think they have a dental school, at least not to my knowledge. In time, maybe they'll spread it. I mean, I think it's needed in the nursing community and, and that too, but right now it's a physician partnership. But these are just a few examples. There are other things you can do. There are residencies in a number of countries in several specialties that you can go teach in, and we often help partner, for example, the internal medicine residency in, at Mabingo Mission Hospital in Cameroon needs internal medicine subspecialists to come and teach for a couple weeks at a time, and we try to recruit those to uh, come and teach their residents. We just sent a pathologist while their pathologist was away, and they teach how to do uh, fine needle aspirations and things like that. Um, so at least those specialties are residencies, uh, sometimes consultations. One country I had never even heard of, I had to look it up on, on the Internet, called Tuva. Have you ever heard of Tuva? <laughs> Tuva wanted us to come and help them design and set up a rehabilitation facility, primarily initially for mental health rehabilitation and eventually physical rehabilitation for veterans of their Chechen and Afghanistan wars because they were having to send them to other parts of the former Soviet Union, losing a lot of funds in the process. And uh, this was a request from the president of the, of the republic, which is a Buddhist republic. And we went, and uh, he met with us when we arrived. And it was the day that uh, Putin's uh, successor was being installed in Moscow. And he actually delayed his departure to meet with us. And when he met with us, he said, to his associates, give them whatever they need. And so, believe it or not, we were in the country only three days. We were able to meet with uh, veterans, with psychiatrists. They even took us to the countryside for a national meal. And we were able to do the whole project in that time. We spent more time traveling to and fro uh, to, than we spent in the country. And I um, uh, oh, lost my train of thought there. But eventually, very, in a very short time, they did build the facility and open it. Oh, I know. I was going to tell you, when we wanted to meet with the veterans, they were all sitting there like this, you know. You could tell it was what we used to call in the military a command performance, you know, be there, whether you want to be there or not. And we were trying to get them to interact, and nobody wanted to say anything. And finally, one stood up and said, I want to know who you are and who sent you. And we, fortunately, our, our leader said, uh, well, I'm glad to ask because we're from the Christian Medical and Dental Associations in America and your president wants to build a rehabilitation center for you and he asked us to come. And uh, by the way, we're all veterans uh, other than this one who's the daughter of a veteran from the Great War, you know, the Great Patriotic War, World War II. And after that, they're like, I want to be the first person at that facility. Can I shake your hand? Can I get my picture taken? So it was one of those God moments. And those of you who are in academia, there are Fulbright scholarships. The American government will pay you to go for six months or so or to do consultations in other countries. So I'd encourage you to apply. Uh, you need to try to find spiritual support while you're there, you know, meet local Christians or even sabbaticals. A lot of you have sabbaticals and probably are already doing them overseas. So, uh, you know, we basically uh, talked about the model MEI's been doing, but I, I don't see why clinically oriented teams can't do this. You know, my vision would be why couldn't they partner with the local Christian Medical and Dental Association if they have one? They have them in over 60 countries of the world. Or if they can find Christian healthcare personnel, why can't they invite the local doctors and, uh, 
you know, charges, whatever the local charges are, if people can afford it. Give that money to the partners, not us. Uh, buy the pharmaceuticals in the country so the pharmacy doesn't lose all of their business while you're there. Hold joint clinics. And you, we have things to learn, too. How many of you are experts in tropical medicine? You know, if you saw somebody with Chagas disease, would you recognize it? So we can learn from them. Uh, also, as I'll talk tomorrow, you know, many countries have health beliefs you'll never know about unless you meet somebody who can tell you about it. And it affects a lot the way they see uh, their health and health care and what can help them. Uh, so I think it, it could be very bi-directional and very good for all of us. And then naturally you'd be eating together. We should celebrate together what God's doing and share at the end what we learned from each other, build each other up, whether Christian or not. And I, I think this would be a great model. So if you're doing clinical teams, I don't know any groups that are currently doing this, but uh, I think that should be the wave of the future. So to end, uh, our founder, Bob Schindler, uh, saying, I don't know what happened there, was uh, that there's nothing in the world better than serving Jesus. And I think you can see how exciting some of these things are. And, you know, we planned almost none of this. We do do, we try to do good planning as far as, uh, you know, preparing and being sure we know the plan. But as somebody mentioned, flexibility is the key to missions and most other things in life. It almost never goes according to plan. You know, if you show up to the hospital, give your lecture at 8 o'clock and you're called Pulse of American, you may have a hard time because they typically like, oh, well, the president of the university wants to meet with you and have coffee. And so you've got to be able to go with the flow. I think people are getting better at that, but typically we're so time-oriented. It's a real problem. But uh, all the glory to the Lord. He's doing it. We're a small part. He's weaving a lot of us together in different roles and doing great things. So I'd encourage you to take those lessons back to your teams. Any questions or discussion? We have a, what time we need to stop? Ten. That's almost time. I should have talked a little less. I get carried away sometimes. Arnie. Short-term missions, I made every mistake you could possibly make on short-term missions. It took me a long time to learn. But if I, I will never, ever in my life go on another short-term mission where I carry drugs. If I do carry drugs, I will carry them only because I know the local doctor needs those drugs and wants those drugs and you can't get them in country. You just don't realize, it, the, only, the only sustainable we have when we go into a, a, I, I, my, I know what your intentions are, and the same were mine. Uh, you know, these people have nothing. We need to go in and help them. Mm-hmm. And what you find out, the only thing you've taught them is that the most important thing is that pill. Mm-hmm. And when we leave, the only business that does a windfall profit is that local pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Because from then on, 
that family, even though like they are, uh, our families in Baja, they don't have enough money for the food. And they go and they take that money to the local pharmacy and buy whole nuts, which the American Academy of Pediatrics has said for over three decades are worthless food that we found. So you, you need to think about this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Anybody else? Examples from your ministries? Or? We have partners with another like internal medicine, uh, family medicine education international associated with In His Image and Prime in the UK that teaches whole person medicine. There are a number of groups doing this. So. Yes. Oh, that's a good question. I'm actually going to talk about teaching and translation and through interpreters tomorrow. But that is an important issue. Fortunately, English is so international now. A large part of the world, you don't even need translation, especially medicines taught in English uh, throughout most of the Arab world, for example, uh, large parts of Africa, uh, India, uh, at least professionals know English. But uh, there are particularly in the former Soviet areas, they're kind of in the transition from Russian to English in medicine. China, uh, we often need translation. But uh, we do work with interpreters. Uh, There are a number of things we'd like to do in selecting interpreters, but typically the country arranges for them. So we basically go with who they uh, provide. It's best, of course, if you can get someone who knows medical vocabulary. Uh, I was teaching in... uh, uh, a city in Central Asia one time, and they provided me a Russian interpreter who was not medical. And uh, I call it tag team translation. The Russian would translate until she got to the medical part, and then the audience would yell out the medical words because they, they kind of got that part, but they didn't know the other part. But I had to wonder how effective is it, and that's always been one of my concerns. How can we best tell if we're communicating directly? Because if you don't know the other language, we can do harm if they don't understand, and I'll talk a little bit about, tomorrow, about it tomorrow, but basically I think the, most, the best way is to build in something that you get feedback from them on what they heard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, the question was, uh, someone who's a psychiatrist with a background in internal medicine, uh, can they go back and cross disciplines to teach? Uh, our general rule is that if you wouldn't teach it in America, you probably shouldn't teach it on a team. So if you feel like you're proficient in internal medicine and up to date, there's not a problem. Uh, I think if you're teaching, uh, say, at one of the residencies where you're teaching kind of basic things, it's more likely you could be part of it than if you're teaching internal medicine faculty because uh, they would take it kind of as an insult in a lot of countries if you weren't. We, we take academics usually to teach academics. We actually were hoping to model how in America we try to uh, help young people become teachers by bringing them along, giving them a chance. And we weren't able to fill one role on a team to Central Asia, but we were able to get a Ph.D. candidate who had expertise in that area. And they were quite insulted that he didn't have his Ph.D. yet and he wasn't an M.D. And he gave a great talk. It was current. But, you know, we're also learning lessons. (laughs) So I guess. Are you a professor? Right. 
if you're a professor, that goes a long way. Most places, they value either being a professor or having a Ph.D. Actually, a lot of countries, an M.D. doesn't speak much, I think, because uh, it's something you all do together, where a Ph.D., you have to do an individual project and prove your worth or whatever in their view. But uh, I'm actually working on Ph.D. for that reason. A lot of places we, we go... Uh, it goes a long way, and being a woman in a Muslim country, hopefully it will go further. But also we're getting asked to do a lot of faculty development, and most medical people have no training in being a teacher per se. You know, it always seemed ironic you have to have a certificate to teach kindergarten, but you can teach from college up with no experience in teaching. So I'm actually doing a Ph.D. in education. I don't think it will matter what it's in, but just having a Ph.D. So those are the two things. If you can get some kind of even adjunct professorship or uh, you have a Ph.D., that really enhances your credibility. Any? Bill? Good point. The, just to summarize for the tape, uh, we need to always remember everybody else we come into contact with. I mean, we're going to teach colleagues, but we should be loving and reaching out to everyone we reach, uh, we interact with, and particularly translators who may be students or residents uh, who are with you the whole time, much longer than many of the individual colleagues, uh, say faculty, and you may have a lot more opportunities with them as they see you throughout the week and you know, even just caring for someone goes a long way in many places. Uh, even in Muslim countries, you can say to people, would it be okay if I prayed for you? I've never had a Muslim say no. I have had a Muslim say it. I was getting evangelized by a Muslim. This wasn't on a team, but uh, in Europe. And uh, he was telling me his thing, and I was sharing about Christ. And I said, would you be willing to pray that God will reveal to us which of these is true? And he wasn't willing <laughs> But to pray for them personally, <laughs> to pray for them personally, <laughs> they want to be, I mean, they're like everybody. Everybody's the same. They want to be loved and cared for. And, and most of the world certainly believes there's a God and it's part of their life. It's not like North America. You probably know that if you've been in many, except maybe Europe. Europe's pretty post-Christian too. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. I'd be glad to talk with anybody. Country you talk to.